Good morning. I, I wanted to start this morning by reading to you an entry from a prayer journal that I used to keep a few years ago. Now, to be honest, I've always been someone who has struggled with prayer. Uh, prayer hasn't been something that has just been good in my life necessarily. But I was in a season of my life where life was just so difficult for me at that time that I honestly just didn't know what else to do but pray. And so pretty much I would wake up every morning and spend a few moments kind of just typing out my thoughts to God, praying to him what was going on in my mind. So I want to share with you this morning an entry that was written on September 22nd, 2009. This is what it said. It said, at this point, I'm not sure how to deal with all of this. There isn't a moment that passes that these things aren't on my mind. I can't concentrate at work. Everyone tells me that I look awful like I haven't slept in years. I actually feel that way. Life is a bit overwhelming right now. Everyone wants me to fix their problems, but I can't even hold myself together. I've been asking you for help for so long, but nothing has changed. In fact, things have gotten worse. I'm beginning to think that nothing will actually get better. I've done everything that I know to do. Now, Lord, why aren't you doing anything? If you're able to change hearts, then why aren't you? What am I doing wrong? All of this is just too much to handle. Why won't you respond? This entry is nearly four years old, but getting the chance to be able to read it over again this past week sort of just reminded me of the the type of emotions that I was feeling during that season of my life. Me and my family were going through issues that I never imagined that our family would have to face. I never would. Because to be honest, because my life in general has been sort of free of any type of hardship or trial. It's been pretty uneventful. There hasn't been many struggles in my life. Up until that point, the things that I would have told you were points of suffering in my life would have been laughable. Until that point, what I would see as suffering would, thing, would be things that you would just dismiss if I were to tell you. But when I wrote that entry, we as a family had been genuinely struggling for nearly two years. And it was like every day the situation would just get worse. It would get more complex and we just didn't know how to bear it any longer. And so I just wanted it all to end. I really did. And so I would pray. You see, the the prayer that I just read to you was just one example of dozens of prayers that sounded the same exact way. I asked the Lord for help in every possible way that I knew how, but it didn't feel like I was getting any answer in return. And so each day, we just continued to struggle through it. Now, sadly, I know that even as I share with you my experience of suffering, that suffering isn't unique to me. I know that. I really do. Suffering is a familiar part of most of our lives, if not all of it. A theologian named D.A. Carson said the following. He said, if you live long enough, you will suffer. The only alternative is to not live long enough. If you live long enough, you will face bereavement, severe illness, loss, disappointment. You or your children or your children's children will suffer. You know, you hear that quote and at first you you sort of feel like that's a fairly morbid view of life, right? 
I mean, if sort of feel like St. Carson, you just need to like lighten up a little bit. Life's really just not that bad. You're being fairly pessimistic. But the thing is, if I were to sort of go up and down these rows and kind of ask everybody, tell me about an experience of suffering that you've gone through in your life. We would have to go through many people before we see that what Carson is saying in that quote is sadly true. You see, it's been the case ever since Genesis chapter 3, right? This world, it doesn't take a theologian to look into this world and to see that the world isn't the way that it was meant to be. There's something deeply wrong in the world that we live in. And for those who know the scriptures and believe the scriptures, we see that what's wrong is that sin has entered into the world and has destroyed everything. And so unfortunately... Suffering becomes a part of everyone's story. It becomes a dot on every single person's timeline. We all have stories to share of suffering. Now, without a doubt, right? Without a doubt, some will suffer more than others. So we don't want to downplay that. And some suffering is absolutely more intense than others' suffering. And yet, eventually, all of us will suffer. And if you were to read the Psalms, from cover to cover, all 150 chapters of it, you start to realize that the psalmists were well aware of this fact as well. They knew this to be true of the world. You see, out of the 150 psalms that were written, 67 of them fall into this category called lament. Lament psalms are psalms or songs or poems that are written out of a, a season of suffering. And so they're filled with language of grief and regret and complaint, and abandonment, and mourning. The Bible is full of them. You see, there's no uh, hiding it. There's no politically correct psalm. They're uncensored and real. The scripture doesn't seem to try to cover it up in any way. Instead, the Bible is filled with passages where people are arguing with God, complaining to God, and weeping before God out of their despair. And I'm actually especially grateful for the Psalms because they speak of suffering in a way that's unlike any other book in the Bible. A fourth century church father named Athanasius said this. He said, the Psalms have a unique place in the Bible because while most scripture speaks to us, the Psalms speak for us. While most scripture speaks to us, the Psalms speak for us. You see, the Psalms give words to the emotions that we're feeling in our heart. The Psalms put into words the expressions that that we just don't have words to express. And so this morning and this entire week as I was looking at Psalm 13, it was like the psalmist was putting into words some of the very emotions that I was feeling during my own season of suffering. And for some of you, I imagine that maybe it's doing the same. And for some of you, I imagine that it's not even necessarily a past season of suffering. You're suffering right now. You're gathered here this morning, right now, and there is difficulty in your life. And you've been at it for some time. And if that's true, Psalm 13 is written for you. Now, wherever you are, right, whether you're in the thick of it or just recovering from suffering or even preparing yourself For a future season of suffering, Psalm 13 speaks for us. So what we want to do this morning is we want to 
unpack this passage, take a look at what the psalmist is saying, and ask God to reshape and reorient our view of suffering and how we respond to it. And so let's ask God to help us in that. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful that not only do we get a chance to hear from you, from your word, to have the word speak to us, but that it is true that sometimes your word, the Bible, speaks for us with words that we are not able to express. We're grateful for this opportunity that we have to be able to study through the Psalms during the summer, to see men of God write out the things that they were going through, the feelings that they were feeling, the expressions that they have that give words to some of the things that we are also feeling and don't know how to express. We are grateful for your word, that there's no part of your word that's irrelevant to us, that all of it speaks to us, speaks for us. All of it helps us, encourages us, challenges us, transforms us. So even as we gather this morning, I'm praying that your word would do that. We haven't gathered to hear from me. We have gathered to hear from you. And so I'm praying, God, that your spirit would speak to us this morning. Please answer us generously. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want to read again this psalm to you, uh, the psalm that Jay read for us. I want to start from the beginning. The heading says, To the choir master, a psalm of David. Listen to David as he speaks. He says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him, lest my foe rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. I think it might be helpful for us just to spend a few moments thinking through the background of this psalm before we get into the text itself. And so as we just read, In the heading itself, it tells us that this psalm was written by David. Now, for those of you who may be unfamiliar with the Bible, uh, David is a man who was spoken a lot of in the Old Testament, the first half of the scriptures. There was a lot that was said about David in the scriptures. Now, for those who maybe even remotely know David, the first thing that comes to people's mind is David fought Goliath. Right? There was this giant man that he had, was, he was the only one that was brave enough to fight. And so he takes some stones and he throws it at Goliath and Goliath comes tumbling down. So that's one of the first things that comes to mind when people hear the name David. But it wasn't just Goliath that David is known for. The scriptures say that David was a man after God's own heart. David was known for the love that he had for God, the the way that he wanted God to be in his life, and he pursued him, and God saw that. And God said, you are a man after my own heart. You love me in a way that others do not. And he recognized him for that. And then it wasn't just that. David was also the second king of Israel, right? 
He was given authority and power over God's own people. Israel was God's people, and David was put into this throne where he would have power and authority over God's people. And he ruled over them because God gave him that ability to do so. Now, while all of this is true, right? While it is true that he was the Goliath killer and a man after God's own heart and the second king of Israel, David's life was far from being perfect. It really was. This same David that did all of those things also spent years of his life, years of his life in fear and hiding from cave to cave, trying to get away from his predecessor, King Saul. For years of his life, King Saul was chasing after David, wanting to kill him out of his jealousy for him. It wasn't even as though David had done anything wrong. David had done nothing wrong, but Saul was chasing after him, trying to kill him, and David would go from cave to cave to cave to cave, trying to outrun King Saul. And then after a season, that stops. But as if that wasn't enough, he goes and is now being chased again. And this time, it wasn't King Saul. He's being chased this time by his own son, Absalom. His son wants to get at him, kill him, destroy him because he's unhappy with his father. And so he chases after him again. And David starts running in fear again, hoping not to be killed by his son. So while we don't know what specifically may have led to David writing this psalm, what we do know is that David is a man that was familiar with suffering. You see, there was no shortage of circumstances in David's life for a psalm like this to be written. This psalm simply represents one of many possibilities of suffering in David's life. This is a psalm that speaks of David's suffering. And yet, it's important for us to consider the other heading in this psalm as well. The other heading says... To the choir master. To the choir master. And so while this is a psalm that was written to sort of express David's emotions, David's season of suffering, this was also a psalm that was used as God's people joined together to sing unto him. This was a moment of worship, a song that they would use to gather and sing to him, just like when we gather and sing to God. But imagine that for a moment, right? Imagine you come here on a Sunday morning and we start off the service and we start singing, How long, O Lord? How long will you forget me? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? It wouldn't be exactly the happiest of song choices, right? You would see what's on the screen behind and say, you know, what was Sidney's week like? What, what was he going through during this week that would cause him to pick a choo- or choose a song like that for us to sing. Because if you've grown up in the church, if you have any background in the church, maybe you've heard before that when we come to worship, that you're supposed to leave your baggage at the door. People say, whatever is going on in your life, leave it at the door and concentrate on worshiping God. But the problem is that the Psalms don't seem to know anything about such a rule. In fact, in fact, what we find is that God's people are gathering corporately to worship God, to worship God through lament. What we find is that they are singing words of mourning and doubt and grief, and God accepts it as worship. 
you know, even before we even jump into this psalm this morning, I hope that just the heading itself is an encouragement to you. But as we gather this morning, if you are sitting here this morning with a heavy heart, if you're sitting here and you're going through a season of suffering, I hope that you're encouraged that God does not tell you or invite you to leave your baggage at the door and tell you to pick it up once you're done worshiping him. He tells you to come before him in your suffering, offering your words of doubt and confusion and overwhelming feelings of anxiety and despair to the Lord. He invites you to, what, to come and, and to share your life with him, not just leave it at the door. Psalm 13 is encouraging us to do that. And so let's look at this text. Let's jump into this text this morning and see what it is that David is communicating to us. Let's read again the first two verses. It says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? So obviously, as we read these first two verses, the most notable phrase in this section right here is how long, right? It's said over and over again, four different times. You can almost hear the frustration in David's voice as he says it over and over and over and over again, how long? It's like he's had enough, right? He can't deal with it any longer. And now we don't know, like we said, we don't know how long this this season of suffering has been for David because we just don't know the specifics of this. But what we do know is that suffering has a way of sort of slowing life down. When you're going through a season of suffering, a tough season of life, it seems like each day drags on forever. It takes forever. One pastor said that a week within prison walls feels longer than a month on vacation. And it's true. Suffering has a way of hijacking every single moment of your life, every second. Taking over your thoughts, your emotions, your speech, everything. It consumes you. And I think that's what David is expressing here. What he's been going through has been killing him slowly, destroying him day by day, and there's no end in sight. And so David can't help but asking, how long? How long, God? How long will you allow this to continue on? But as we continue to read these first two verses, we see that David's biggest issue isn't even necessarily the longevity of his suffering, It's also the feeling of abandonment. He says, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? David finds himself in some of the most difficult situations in his life. Whatever it may be, in a difficult situation in his life, and God is seemingly nowhere to be found. And he's asking how long? These two sayings, forget me and hide your face from me, actually have very specific meanings. You see, we gather and we know that David is a man after God's own heart. And so he's not ignorant to who God is. David has good theology, right? And because he has good theology, he knows that God doesn't forget. God is omniscient, right? He knows all things. He understands all things. God is omniscient. And so David's accusation isn't that God is unaware of his suffering, that somehow it passed by him that he didn't realize that David was going through a tough season in his life. That isn't 
David's accusation against God. In fact, his accusation against God is even worse. David is accusing God of being fully aware of David's suffering, but not doing anything. David's saying, will you continually forget me? Will you continually forget me? How long will you continually see my suffering and not respond? And when you consider what it is that David's saying here, you know, it would almost be better if God, in fact, weren't aware, right? Because that would almost be a little bit easier for us to swallow. But to think that God sees David's suffering and decides to turn a blind eye, to to turn away and not do anything, what in the world is David supposed to do with that? This is a man after God's own heart. I'm your child. Why are you not responding to what's going on in my life? It's not like you don't know. Why aren't you saying anything? And so David says, will you forget me forever? Then he continues to say, how long will you hide your face from me? You see, in the scripture, when someone says, the face of God is shining upon me, it's another way of saying that God is showing them favor or showing them blessing in their lives. The face of God is shining upon me. And so inversely, when someone says, why are you hiding your face from me? It means that God has removed his favor and his blessing from their lives. And David just doesn't get it. David doesn't get it. He's saying, what have I done to deserve this? You see, it's important to note that in this psalm, there's no confession of sin, right? There's no recognition of personal guilt. So in other words, this suffering that David is going through isn't because David has done something to deserve it. He hasn't done anything to deserve this suffering, and yet God has forgotten him and has hid his face from him, and David just doesn't get it. He doesn't see why. And he's saying, how long will you hide your face from me? In fact, David says that he's been struggling just to understand why this is happening. In verse 2, he says, how long must I take counsel in my soul? That's actually just another way of saying, I've been dissecting this situation, right? Tearing it apart, trying to figure out what it is that has caused this suffering to come into my life. What went wrong or when did it go wrong? And we all know what that looks like, right? When suffering comes into our life, we just sort of pick it apart. We try to consider and reconsider what happened, how it led us to come to this point. And we say things like, well, maybe I shouldn't have said that. Or maybe if I just did that. And we try to figure out, What got us into this situation? We analyze and scrutinize every part of our suffering, hoping to find some answers. And David's saying, how long will you leave me to try to figure things out for myself? I mean, you can only, honestly speaking, you can only analyze and scrutinize your situation for so long before all you're left with is just sorrow. Your heart is just consumed by sorrow. And at that point, it doesn't even matter why you're suffering. It doesn't even matter why you're suffering. At that point, all that matters is how long. At some point, the question changes from why, why, God, are you causing this to happen to just how long? How long will you allow this to happen? And some of you are at that point right now. 
If we were to be honest, some of you are sitting in this pew this morning and you've been suffering for a long time and it's been in such a great intensity that you're not even caring about why anymore. You just want to know how long. How long will my marriage be broken? How long will I fail at the things that I try so hard at? How long will I live in singleness? How long will I be plagued by sickness? How long? And so like David in verse 2, you're yelling out, How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Whatever or whoever that enemy may be, how long will this enemy of mine stand there gloating over me in victory while I'm experiencing the sorrow of defeat? How long? You see, what we're seeing here in these two verses is just David being brutally honest. You see, when you're overcome by loneliness and when you're filled with sorrow and defeated by your enemy, what is the point of sugarcoating anything? Right? Why pretend in any of that? Why not just say it as it is? Who are we protecting by sugarcoating things? Thankfully, the Psalms remind us this morning that we don't have to pretend. Instead, when we find ourselves in suffering, God invites us to respond with honesty. God isn't going to be offended or caught off guard by what you say. He isn't wishing that you hadn't said that. He invites you to deal with what's going on in your heart with honesty. And so for all of us, when we find ourselves in the presence of suffering, we need to remember that God is inviting us to respond with honesty. Let's move on to verses 3 and 4. It says, Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaking. It was interesting to see what's happening here, right? It's almost like David puts down his pen for a second and someone, someone else picks it up and starts writing. Because just a single verse ago, David is screaming out his feelings of abandonment and anger. I mean, if someone just read verses 1 and 2 of this psalm, you would think that he was done with God, that he wanted no more to do with God. But now you read verse 3, and you see David turning back to God, asking him for things again. And you wonder, what in the world just happened? What happened in between verse 2 and verse 3 that would cause this shift in the tone in the way that David speaks to God. And to be honest, we don't know what, we ha- what just happened. All we know is that somewhere along the path of lamenting over his suffering, David crosses an invisible line from self to other. He crosses an invisible line from self to other. Somewhere along the way, he comes to the end of himself. And actually, I think we all know what that looks like to cross that line. Because it could be any number of things that causes that to happen. It could simply just be the, the utter exhaustion of letting it all out, of venting out all of your frustration. You just get to a point where there really, honestly, aren't just any more tears to be cried about this any longer. There aren't any more words that you could possibly say to describe how it is that you're feeling. You've just come to the end. You've crossed that line. Or maybe you've come to your wit's end. 
you've considered and reconsidered and analyzed everything about this situation, trying to figure out what went wrong and how did it go wrong, and you've tried to figure out to do whatever you can to try to fix the situation, and it's only getting worse, and so you're done. You see, whatever it may be, whatever causes it, there comes a point in our suffering where we cross the line from self to other. Now, the truth is, what that other ends up being will differ from person to person. For some, it'll be food. We'll run to food and we'll try to eat away our our sorrow, try to fill ourselves up to take our minds off of what's going on and find comfort in food. Others can find themselves spending day and night in front of a television, just sort of staring into that screen, vegging out on the couch because you're just trying to find some type of comfort in entertainment. Some seek solace in drunkenness. You're trying to find or manufacture a freedom that doesn't really exist, and so you hit the bottle. It could be anything. You will honestly give yourself to anything, whatever it takes to get your mind off of yourself. But what if I told you this morning that I think God allows us to lament in our suffering in order that we would do exactly that? What if I told you that God wants us to reach a point of suffering so that we would come to the end of ourselves? But instead of turning to temporal and lesser things that aren't able to rescue us, that he wants us to turn to himself. It actually reminds me of a passage in the New Testament where a person named Paul, an apostle, wrote this in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. He says this. He says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. You see, whatever was going on in Paul's life in Asia, whatever it may have been, he says that it was so difficult for him, it was so hard, it was such a season of suffering for him that he hated his life. He despaired of his life. He said his burden was beyond his ability to endure. You see, what we're seeing in this passage right here is Paul too crossed that line. Paul crossed that line. He reached the end of himself. But instead of letting suffering lead him to lesser things to rescue him, he turns to God. Hear it again. He says, Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. God allows suffering in our lives in order that we would come to the end of ourselves. And that we would move from a reliance on ourselves to a reliance on him who is able to raise the dead. And that's what we're seeing here with David. The transition from verse 2 to 3 is sort of like a spotlight that's beginning to move, right? So we enter into this psalm and there is this huge spotlight that's focused and shining brightly on David. And he's lamenting and he's telling God what he's feeling. But from the shift from verse 2 to verse 3, it's almost like we're seeing the spotlight slowly beginning to move. While it was shining on David all of this time, David is allowing this spotlight to now be shown on someone else. It's starting to move. 
And so David begins to pray and ask God for a few things. The first thing he says is, consider me. Consider me. The word consider me literally here means to gaze intently into something. To gaze intently into something. David's saying, listen, God, I know. I know that you're omniscient. You know all things. I understand that. But what I'm asking is that you would look closely, that you would gaze intently into my suffering right now. In other words, what David is asking is that God would identify himself with his suffering, to mourn with him. You know, a few months ago, uh, I remember walking into my aunt's house. I walked into my aunt's house and her son had just passed away a few hours earlier. Uh, He was 19 years old. And so I walked into uh, her house, and I remember walking in, seeing just a handful of people uh, standing around in the living room while she was sitting there on the couch. And she had just heard that her son had passed away, and she's sitting there, and she's sobbing. Tears are rolling down her face. Literally, I mean, her shirt was wet just with the tears, the overwhelming feeling of grief that she was feeling. And there were a bunch of people standing around, in the living room. And you can almost sense immediately, as soon as you walk into room, into that room, how unhelpful that was for her. You see, my aunt wasn't just looking for people to physically be present and watching her as she cries. She needed someone to identify themselves with her grief, to mourn with her, to sit with her, Not even necessarily to say anything, because what in the world can you possibly say to a woman who loses her 19-year-old son? What can you possibly say to her? But to simply make their nearness known. That's what she wanted. And I think that's what David is seeking here as well. David has come to the end of himself, and he's asking God, God, would you just mourn with me? Help me to know, help me to see that you haven't forgotten me. Help me to realize that you haven't turned your face away from me. Help me to to see that you are near. So David says, consider me. And then he goes on to say, answer me. And what a great contrast that is from verse 2, right? In verse 2, David said that he was taking counsel in his own soul. He was analyzing and considering what had happened, trying to fix this situation that he found himself in. But right now, he's done. He's done trying to find answers, trying to find solutions. David's realized that this is a situation that is beyond his ability to fix or to understand. No self-help book will ever be able to get him out of this period of suffering in his life. And so what David is saying, God, I need you to walk into this, to intervene. I need you to provide insight and understanding that I just cannot figure out for myself. And so he says, answer me. And then he finally prays, light up my eyes. See, this is a phrase in the Hebrew language that means the same thing as give me breath. Light up my eyes means give me breath because David's exhausted. David's exhausted. Suffering does that to you. If you're sitting here this morning and you're in suffering, you know just how physically exhausted you are. What a toll suffering takes on your life. You're exhausted. His life has been torn into pieces. He's falling apart. And so David is asking, God, would you light up my eyes? Would you give me breath? 
David needs God to restore him physically as much as he needs him to restore him spiritually. He needs to be put back together again, to be given the chance to breathe again. And then he ends this whole section by saying, listen, God, if you don't do these things, if you don't consider me and answer me and light up my eyes, I'm going to die. And it sort of sounds like a, like a drama queen type of thing to say, right? I'm going to die if you don't do these things. But I don't think that he was being overly dramatic. I don't think he was exaggerating what he was feeling. I think he was just being honest. If you don't do something, I feel like I'm going to die. I'm going to sleep the sleep of death. I just honestly can't handle this any longer. And if I end up defeated, my enemies are just going to rejoice. So please, God, I've come to the end of myself. Would you consider me? Would you answer me? And would you light up my eyes? So what David is showing us here in this presence in in verses 3 and 4 is that in the presence of suffering, when we've come to the end of ourselves, God is inviting us and he's calling us to respond with dependency. See, at some point in our suffering, we will inevitably cross that line from self to other. Suffering will undoubtedly bring us to the end of ourselves. And David is saying, listen, I've tried to figure these things out. I've tried to understand. I just can't. And so I'm going to shift my attention on you. I'm going to shine that spotlight on you because I just honestly can't do this on my own anymore. When we're in the presence of suffering, we are called and invited to respond with dependency. Let's look at the final two verses, verse 5 and verse 6. But it says, But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. You see, if verse 3 and 4 was the beginning of the, the shifting of that spotlight from David to God, when we reach verses 5 and 6, it's almost like that spotlight is fully focused on God right now. That power is turned up to maximum. maximum. It is beaming on God and who he is. Psalm 13, the same psalm that begins with shouts of despair and, and abandonment, now ends with shouts of trust and joy. And here's the thing unless you hear it as just a a, a fake, a facade that David is putting up. He's not just thinking positively, right? He's not just trying to forget what's really going on and fixing his eyes, pretending like something that is there isn't there. Instead, his trust and his joy is rooted in his realization of God's love for him. You see, I think this is one of those points in, in the English translation of the Bible where I think we sort of lose something that's being communicated to us. You see, the word that's being used here for steadfast love is actually a Hebrew word called hesed. Hesed. It's one of those words where there isn't necessarily a one-to-one correlation from the Hebrew to the English. And so Bible translators have translated this word into all sorts of words like kindness and, and faithfulness and loyalty and steadfast love. But when we start to kind of pick that word apart, we see that what type of love that this word is trying to communicate isn't an emotional form of love. It's one of action and commitment. 
Chesed is talking about a love that leads someone to action and commitment. There's a book written for small children. It's called the Jesus Storybook Bible. Some of you may own it. And it actually does a wonderful job in describing God's chesed love to children. And maybe even to us. It describes God's chesed love as never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. Never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. That's how they describe Hesed. And I think that's exactly right. That's exactly what it is. Hesed love never stops, never gives up, will not break. It will be always and forever. And so when David is writing this psalm and he's talking about God's steadfast love, he has something very particular in mind. David's thinking about a covenant that God created with his people, a promise that he made to them. You see, in the Bible, in the Old Testament, there is this, uh, we see this scene where God enters into this covenant relationship with his people, with Israel. And in this covenant, God promises to demonstrate never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love to his people. He promises to faithfully and eternally be their God forever to provide for them, to rescue them, to forgive them, to show them hesed. And when we look at the Old Testament, it's actually interesting to see a specific way in which God chooses to show his people hesed. He demonstrates hesed by reaching out to them and telling them his name. And you might hear that, you might say, what does that even mean? Why does it even matter that God would tell a group of people, his name. You see, this holy and sinless, no beginning, no end, creator of the universe tells people his personal name. And he says, you can call me Yahweh. It's the personal name of God. It's like if you were being invited to meet the president of the United States, right? And so you've been thinking about it all week and kind of thinking about what it is that you want to say. You're about to meet the most, one of the most powerful and influential men in the world. So you've kind of been developing a speech, getting yourself ready and prepared to go and meet him. And so you drive down to Washington, D.C. You park at the White House. You walk into the Oval Office, and you've been practicing it. And so you say, hello, Mr. President. And he says, no, 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 stop. I want you to call me Barack. Call me Barack. No formalities here. Call me Barack. And it's, that, it's not even what he's just saying to everybody. He specifically wants you to call him Barack. He wants to know you personally. And he wants you to know him personally. That would be unbelievable, right? I mean, your Facebook wall would be <laughs> going crazy. You would be saying, you won't believe what just happened. Barack Obama said he wants me to call him Barack. You would be telling everyone you possibly know. You would be calling your friends and your family, texting and tweeting, letting everyone know that this most powerful and influential man in this world wants me to call him Barack. And that's exactly what God does. You see, God doesn't present himself to the Israelites as a distant and indifferent God. Instead, he relates to them personally. He tells them his name. In fact, it's actually the name that David's been using this entire psalm. In the Bible, when you see the word Lord, 
written in all small caps. That's actually the word Yahweh. It's not just Lord. It's his personal name. It's Yahweh that's being written there. And David's been talking to God using his personal name the entire time. The name that points to the covenant that he establishes with his people. The name that promises to show Hesed love. This never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. God's name reminds David that even when Israel is faithless, even when David begins to doubt, Yahweh's love will be never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever. When Israel finds themselves in suffering and needs to be rescued, Yahweh saves them out of his never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. You see, David isn't just pretending in verses 5 and 6. He's not just trying to ignore what's really going on. The hope that he finds in the midst of his suffering, in the presence of his suffering, is because he's gazing at God's hesed love. David knows that when Yahweh creates a covenant, Yahweh will keep that covenant. In the presence and in the midst of suffering, David chooses not to shine that spotlight on him, but to shine that spotlight on God's hesed love. David is going to trust in God's steadfast love, his covenant love, his hesed. I think it's important as we wrap up this morning just to kind of consider the fact that there's no mention in this psalm of any type of rescue, right? David's not talking about having been rescued from this, that now I find trust and joy in you. His suffering is by no means over. His life is still in need of rescue. But in the midst of it all, David can't help but remember God's hesed love. And it leads David to an expectancy of one day being saved. He says, listen, because you have dealt bountifully with me in the past, I can live with expectancy that you will rescue me in the future. When we're in the presence of suffering, God's hesed love leads us to respond with expectancy. As we close this morning, I think it's what's most awesome as we read through this passage is that you and I have seen God's hesed love even more clearly than David was able to. Because for us, God's hesed became flesh. You see, though Jesus had done nothing wrong, the scripture says that his life was marked by suffering. The scripture says that Jesus was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. That though he had once enjoyed the fullness of relationship and love within the Godhead, that his life was now lived in loneliness and abandonment. And if, as though all of that wasn't enough, that in his darkest moment, as Jesus hung there on that cross, on that, on that day, the same father that he had always been loyal to turns his face from him and forgets him in his deepest and darkest hour of need. And all of that happened. All of that happened so that you and I could know and experience Hesed. 
Hesed is God's never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. And Jesus suffered in order that in the midst of our suffering, we can find rescue and salvation through his suffering. And so if you're here this morning and you're going through a season of suffering, I want to just remind you of what it is that God is inviting you to. God is inviting you to respond with honesty. Don't pretend. God is all-knowing, and he cares. He honestly does. Is demonstrated through his hesed. He's inviting you to respond with dependency. When you've come to the end of yourself, when there isn't any more searching that you can do, any more describing that you can do, he's saying, make your dependency on God, who is able to raise the dead. And when you find yourself in the midst of suffering, God is inviting you to respond with expectancy. That the same God who has dealt with you bountifully in the past will indeed rescue you out of his hesed love, his never stopping, his never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. All we can do is place our trust in him and he is faithful to save us. Let's pray. Father, how grateful I am that even as we gather this morning, that we don't have to try to figure out what Hesed love looks like. It came to us in a person. That when Jesus entered into this world, your Hesed love became flesh. And through his life and through what he has done for us and through what he has said to us, we are able to experience Hesed love. That in the midst of suffering, when life has honestly just gotten too much to bear, we remember the one that gave up his life in order that we would be able to find rescue in the midst of our suffering. Father, even as we gather right now, we confess that we don't even know each other's lives. We may not know what's going on. There may be a tendency in some of us right now just to gather here this morning, feeling the need to pretend. And yet we are grateful that you are an all-knowing God and that you're not a God who simply is aware and does nothing. You are a God who is aware and has done everything for us in Jesus. That because of his death and his burial and his resurrection, we too have life out of the grave that we are experiencing right now in our suffering. We have much hope in your hesed love. Remind us of it this morning even as we suffer. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.